Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for listening today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined for today's episode live and in studio by my wonderful partner, Elizabeth Ferreira. Elizabeth, how are you doing today? Pretty good. Pretty excited. You excited to do this? Yeah. No, I mean, we have a new setup. Finally, we get to kind of like feel cozy together, <laughs> surrounded by my plants. Yeah, all of the plants are Elizabeth's. Sometimes people ask me how I take such great care of the plants in the studio. And the answer is that I don't. Mm-hmm. Exactly none of it is me. Exactly all of it is Elizabeth. So if you want the person with the green thumb, it's definitely her. They get good vibes, though. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They kind of absorb the good vibes yeah. from the conversations <laughs> that we have in the studio. But okay, what are we talking about mm-hmm. today? We've referenced somatic psychology and body-based interventions a ton on the podcast. And then I was looking back through our archives and I realized something horrible. Mm. We've never actually done an episode on (laughs) somatic psychology. And I live with a somatic therapist. So, hey, that's probably a good idea. Uh, So for people who might not know, Elizabeth is currently working in her associateship. She's a recent graduate of the California Institute of Integral Studies Mm -hmm. and has a concentration in somatic psychology. So she's training to be a somatic therapist. She's currently working with clients. She's been doing that for about a year now, if you count your Mm -hmm. practicum. A little over a year now. A little over a year now. And uh, so somatics really informs her practice. You get broad training in a lot of different things, but somatics is your concentration. So how does somatic psychology differ from more traditional forms of talk therapy? The short answer is that somatic psychology is a bottom-up approach. So really, we're working with the survival part of the brain, the limbic, the lizard brain, as some people talk about, and it's incorporating the nervous system in processing memory, in processing trauma, in processing who we are as we discover the self. Mm -hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but my understanding is that the premise of it is that the body and the mind are are woven together mm-hmm. in a variety of different ways, some of which are pretty complicated and some of which are pretty simple. I think that everybody has had uh, the experience where you're really nervous about something, so you get a feeling in your gut. Mm-hmm. And we talk about that. So we've had an understanding for a long time that the body is involved in some kind of way in how we process our emotions and our experiences. So how does that actually show up in like counseling? What are you doing differently with somebody that like a talk therapist or like a CBT person might not be doing? The way that we feel affects that the way that we think. Mm. And also the way we think affects the way that we feel. And at our core, our, our body is a soft animal in and of itself. And yet our logical part of our brain is able to do these really high-minded concepts. It can hold a lot of concepts, ideas, theories. Mm. So the difference being is that somatic psychology and what it feels like in the room is that we incorporate the illogical. We're not necessarily always being like, yeah, there's a really good reason why you feel this way in this Mm. moment, and we're going to really think about it, and we're going to think our way out of it. That doesn't work, actually. Mm. So instead, we include the soft animal of your body as these illogical forces start to come up in the session. Mm -hmm. And really what we're talking about is we're actually being with our feelings. Mm. And most people have no idea how to be with their feelings. They think they do, but they don't actually feel them in a full way where they can process the feeling. Mm -hmm. So if we grow up in an environment which 99% of people I would say do, we learn to avoid our feelings. We learn to mask our feelings, push them down, and they get locked like knots in our nervous system, in our body. And so for some people, the beginning sensation of a feeling starts to create panic because, oh, it's going to be so bad if I feel grief or if I feel sadness, or worse, it becomes the big capital D depression, you know? So we're really creating enough safety for the body to be able to actually feel what it's feeling and to process those feelings Mm -hmm. so that the knots in the nervous system, metaphorically speaking, get released. Mm -hmm. So now the fear attached to that feeling doesn't exist anymore. 
So when I first start talking to somebody about somatics, and I'm sure you've gotten this too, one of the questions that often comes up or like vibes that often comes up is maybe a better way to put it, <laughs> is like, oh, are we going to be rolling around on the ground a lot? Are we going to be doing dance therapy? There's sort of this expectation that you are actually engaging the body in movement during a session. Mm -hmm. Is that true for you? And what are some of the things that you kind of do with people to maybe help them access those emotions that you're speaking to in a way that feels safe to them? It depends on the individual. So I think every somatic therapist works slightly differently, but just speaking the way that I work, mm -hmm. is that I really focus on attunement. And so sometimes that attunement shows up as we're being a little more analytical, we're we're talking about things more, and then there might be a moment where I'm like, hey, are you noticing? Or I noticed you you keep touching your neck in this way. I'm curious what's there. With other people, they have a deep access to the somatic realms, so to speak. And so, yeah, it can look like we're, we're moving. You know, there's a lot of guided, like, try this, opening up the joints, right? But there's nothing that I do that's like, okay, you're going to lay down on the floor and you're going to shake uncontrollably and now really feel it. You yeah, know? yeah. Yeah. So, so it's a little bit softer than that? It's softer. Okay. It's more gentle. And my whole perspective is that like we're trying to take things out a spoonful at a time. Mm -hmm. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So, so for example, let's try something right now. Yeah, great. So if you can, Forrest, mm -hmm. take a comfortable seat. Okay. I'm going to slightly rejigger myself with my mm -hmm. little recording setup over yeah, here. But yeah. All right. Okay. And take some time to let your body be as comfortable as it can in this moment. Yeah, so any little micro-adjustments, just let them happen. And just take some time to notice how your body has weight and your body breathes. And even now, in this moment, as your body naturally begins to ground and settle, just be a little curious, like, hmm, how can I be just a little bit more comfortable in this moment? Is there any tension that I can surrender to gravity? Can I trust the chair that my body is in to hold my body? Just allowing any tension in your tummy, in your chest, in your throat to relax if it feels safe. Because sometimes tension is supposed to be there. Just see if you can find a moment of stillness that your body feels at ease in. So now, how do you feel now compared to before we started? Well, I do feel more grounded. Mm-hmm. I feel heavier in my seat. Mm -hmm. uh, my chair feels like it has more pressure against me, but I think it's that I have more pressure against it. <laughs> yeah, I do feel a little more relaxed. I mean, I, I had a lot of excitement going into this because we've been talking about doing this for a little while and it was cool to actually do it. And I think that naturally makes you just like fired out of a cannon a little bit. Yeah. And so I feel a little bit more at the even pace that I do what I normally do interviews. Mm -hmm. So that feels nice because that feels a little more natural. Yeah, I feel good. Mm -hmm. My body feels a little more relaxed. Yeah. And that was a nice practice. Mm -hmm. So to me, this is a movement. Mm. This subtle shift is actually a big shift to the body and the nervous system because we went from a place of maybe like higher energy mm -hmm. to a place where now we're really attuned to our body. We can feel the chair. We can feel things that we weren't maybe aware of before we started. What starts to come up for people? when you go through that kind of a process with them in a session? What we just did? Mm -hmm. 
Often people describe feeling more grounded, calm. Mm -hmm. Often a, a part starts to emerge sometimes. Yeah. Like a sensation in the body starts mm -hmm. to emerge. And sometimes, and as we did this, I was joining you, so my eyes were closed. But sometimes I watch, mm -hmm. and you can see these, these twitches that start to happen mm. from the other person as the body kind of settles a little bit. So often an opening begins when we invite the body into softness. Mm -hmm. Does that help people access emotional content or psychological content? It depends. Sometimes, mm. yep, it's like a portal emerges and there we go. And for people who struggle to be in their body a little bit or who have a dissociative pattern, you know, you'll get the like, oh, yeah, it was fine, great, <laughs> you know, and you're like, okay. And that tells you a lot too. You're like, okay, maybe we need to slow this down even more. Mm -hmm. So what's a dissociative pattern? Yeah, so a dissociative pattern is when any contact with the body, even if it's for pleasure or good, mm -hmm. just doesn't really land. Mm. And this can happen when people have experienced trauma, when folks have, you know, are in a state of depression where everything just feels kind of numb. And so moving in with the body, and I really think that dissociative states are good because they're telling you that something in the body is too overwhelming mm -hmm. for the person to experience. Mm -hmm. So even if just this exercise or practice doesn't land for someone, that tells me, okay, we're going to have to move extremely slowly mm. because safety has not been reached yet. Are there people who have an aversion to moving slowly and they want to move at like a much faster tempo? Yes, most people. <laughs> mm. mm -hmm. So when you say we're going to need to move extremely slowly, do you mean like get them to a place where that kind of settling, it works for them or like is more comfortable for them? It's more of taking time with folks like that in the mind first. Mm. So they often, not everyone, but often they need to understand why we're doing what we're doing. Yeah. And they need to start to feel more comfortable being in proximity to my body, mm -hmm. being watched by someone, mm -hmm. starting to even just look at the Gordian knot of their experience. <laughs> <laughs> like sometimes just looking at it, yeah. it's like, oh man, that's a lot. Yeah. We've talked a lot about cognitive bypassing. Mm -hmm. It's something that comes up almost every conversation that we have <laughs> when I ask you, like, what's it like to work with people because you're a clinician and I am not. Mm -hmm. And I think that it would be probably really helpful for a lot of people to understand more about what that is and just like what purpose it's serving. So would you mind explaining that? Yeah. So cognitive bypassing, and there are several different types of bypassing, but with cognitive, it is a survival strategy that someone has learned to avoid their feelings. Mm. So instead of actually somatically feeling their feelings in their body, they think about the feeling. Mm. So they can understand on a logical level, oh, I'm feeling sad because that was sad. Mm -hmm. But even the way that I just said that, right? Flat affect. Mm -hmm. The sadness is not present in the body as they're talking about it. There's immense distance between what the body can feel and how they're talking about it. And so often when people cognitively bypass, they're like, look, I understand why I'm sad and, and that I'm sad and what do we do about it? And so in that, they are bypassing the action we actually need in mm. order to do something about it. What's that action? You got to feel it. Okay. You got to feel the dreaded experience. Mm. And you got to let your mind relax and not think about it. How do you help people get to a place where that's more possible for them? Because that can be a pretty long road for people. It is long. Yeah. It is a long road. And for some people, it's it's not that long. Mm -hmm. Some people, they're right at the cusp mm -hmm. and all they need is a little support and they're off to the races with it. But with other people, it's just like a moment of grace sometimes mm -hmm. where all the elements of they feel safe with me, they feel safe with themselves, they feel like they can finally relax a little mm -hmm. bit more into a practice or something, or even the feeling becomes too big to avoid at a moment, and then they feel it. 
And often that's when there's a cathartic release. And, and I want to be careful. Like we don't push for catharsis. I never push for catharsis because you can harm someone. Mm -hmm. But when catharsis emerges naturally, because the container supports that experience for a person, there's a release that happens. Mm -hmm. There's a physical type of release. And for a brief moment, the person experiences that release. Mm -hmm. They're like, there's either a sigh or... You know, if they're more aware and they have a relationship with their body, they're like, I feel like something finally let go. Mm. Um, something finally was able to mm -hmm. take a deep exhale. Mm. Is there a kind of person or a kind of problem that is particularly served by somatic psychology or the approaches in somatics? Trauma. Mm. <laughs> Just broad spectrum? Trauma, yeah. Uh, if you got trauma... Yeah. Yeah. Somatic psychology is probably for you. Yeah, and to give a little bit of backdrop on why that might be for a person, we've had a number of conversations with Dr. Bruce Perry, and there are other people who have done work in this territory too. But for many people, particularly who go through significant painful developmental experiences, mm -hmm. like bad things that happened to them when they were really young, particularly if these things were really bad and really persistent over a long period of time, it can actually affect the development of the brain. So the brain is kind of like a house. It's built sequentially in these different floors. And the floors of the brain, to stretch our metaphor here, that are used, that are leveraged by top-down approaches like cognitive behavioral therapy, which is viewed by many as sort of the gold standard approach, particularly for behavior issues. Also for insurance. Also for, also, <laughs> also for insurance, which is a whole other conversation, but definitely also for insurance. And the kind of brain structures that are leveraged by CBT are the very, very top of that house where we're talking the most sophisticated structures that we have in our brain. And so for somebody whose brain was constructed in a dysregulated environment, sometimes they don't have the same access to those top floors that somebody who underwent a normal childhood experience, not a perfect one, but a normal one with normal bumps and bruises and normal problems and normal misattunements from their primary caregivers, all of that, all of that stuff that just happens to people. And so because like you were saying, somatics is a bottom-up approach. It relies a lot on those lower stories of the house in order to give people a lot of benefit. So that's just an explanation for why somatics tends to benefit that population. That's right on. And so the way that I talk about this stuff is I incorporate a lot of parts work in my mm -hmm. work. And this is something that I've, I've been witnessing, and I even witnessed it in myself when I was going through my own trauma work, is that when we experience adverse, overwhelming experiences or traumas or however you want to label them, misattunements in childhood, and perhaps a part of us, you know, is starting to emerge, you know, say the part of me that feels angry. Mm -hmm. but what is anger than the part of me that can hold my boundaries, mm -hmm. the part of me that can recognize this is a violation and you don't get to do this to me, right? But what if that part, as soon as it emerges when I'm a kid, is vilified? It causes abandonment. It's taught, oh, no, you can't actually ever express this. Mm -hmm. So all of those gifts that that part of me has towards my capital S self never gets to be integrated. It gets stuck in the moment of time when the trauma happened. Mm. So now every time in my adult self, I feel angry. I'm having like a toddler temper tantrum in my body and I'm so dysregulated, but I can't understand why the hell am I feeling this way? Because mm. logically I understand I'm an adult. Logically I understand I shouldn't be hijacked by this feeling, mm -hmm. but Yet, the two-year-old in me is wigging out. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we do with somatic psychology is we often are providing a space where finally those parts feel safe enough to come back into the person's conscious awareness to be integrated into their wholeness. Mm. And so parts, it's an idea from internal family systems that although we are one person, we are constellations of bits and pieces of us that want different things or have different priorities. 
and anybody can see this in their own experience. There's a part of you that really wants to be regimented and on time and get all of your tasks done. And there's a part of you that wants to roll around on the floor and play with your friends and be carefree and all of that. That's a very simplistic example. And then over time, one of the ideas in internal family systems is that a kind of big picture goal for people is to become more integrated, Mm -hmm. have more of these parts available to them to access, to use in positive ways, to improve your relationship with all of these different little sub-personalities that a person might have inside of them. And so you think that somatics is a good tool for accessing some of those parts that a person has come into a more complicated relationship with? Absolutely. I firmly believe Mm. that parts, the language of parts, are the body. And that long before we can analyze our parts or understand, oh, this is the exiled part of me that came from this moment in time, Mm. it starts as a feeling. And it's often a feeling that you would do anything to not experience. Mm. It's a feeling in your body that you start to associate with distress. And you're like, this is not safe for me to feel. Because in that moment of time, it was not safe for you to be that part. Mm -hmm. So if you're somebody who has watched some of the previous videos with Elizabeth or listened to some of the previous episodes, you've been quite self-disclosing about Mm -hmm. your own process and your own content where uh, two things to note in particular, we've done two previous episodes on complex PTSD and on premenstrual dysphoric disorder or PMDD. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have both of these things. You have worked with both of them extensively. Yeah. (laughs) So you're kind of living proof that a lot of this stuff works. Mm -hmm. You mentioned anger earlier. I know that anger is something that you've done a lot of processing around. Mm -hmm. What were some particular things that you did to process that material, get more comfortable with that exiled part or that exiled emotion? Just like how did your training in somatics serve your own own growth, your own practice? Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you're comfortable talking about it, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. It's a pretty personal question. Well, let me first ask my part if it's okay. You okay, know, yeah. Like, hey, how do you feel about this? Mm. For me, anger was very much an exiled emotion. And whenever I started to feel angry about something or towards someone, I immediately assumed that I was the problem. Mm. That, oh, I'm feeling angry because I haven't like, ascended to like a level of vibration that you know transcends where you just post anger yeah yeah you know? totally or you know the the common story that women are given is like oh you're not angry sure. you're sad oh yeah and so you or know, if you're angry you're a bitch exactly yeah so it got very intertwined with whenever i would feel rage mm-hmm. i would cry mm-hmm. and so for me a huge part of it was letting the tears cry out, letting that well out enough to where I finally got to the core of, I'm fucking angry Mm. and I hate that person, you Mm. know, and owning, I hate that person for good reason. Mm. And I'm not a bad person because I can't find some, you know, divine intervention inside (laughs) myself that's like, oh, you know, I can be friends with this person. It's like, no, sometimes anger's there for a Mm. reason. And so By integrating that part of myself, it looked like sometimes when I knew I was home by myself, Mm -hmm. I would scream. I would have these fake conversations with the people I hated and let my anger and rage say all the things that I wished I could say to their face. Mm -hmm. I had a therapist at the time that I was working with who did a lot of brain spotting with me, which is a form of EMDR where you're looking at a spot and when you look at the spot, it creates more activation and you stare at it for a long enough time until you start to feel something different. It's a little more complicated, but that's kind of the base. And then also moving my body in the ways that it was resisting. Mm. So learning how to speak louder, Mm. learning how to say at moments, you fucked up, you don't tell other people, being okay embracing my strength Mm -hmm. and moving an immense amount of weight at the gym, you know? Yeah. So just because what I shared worked for me does not mean that that's going to work for somebody else. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about somatics is that we're learning 
in the therapy session what tools actually work for you. And we're repairing your relationship to your own body. So for me, my repair was learning how to integrate my anger and exploring physical things that I could do to make it feel safe to feel angry. Mm. But with other people, anger isn't even on the board. Sometimes it's a different emotion. It's a different feeling. And I think it's really just important to give that caveat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for you, your work with anger was kind of a portal for you. Mm -hmm. You identified it as a key issue that you had. Mm -hmm. Then you were able to work with it. And through that work, you saw improvement. Mm -hmm. Symptoms got better. Mm -hmm. A lot of the time for people identifying what the thing is that you have to apply some something to, some pressure to, some work to, whatever, can be really challenging. And there's a basic idea in therapy of a presenting problem, which mm -hmm. is that what brings people into the room is not always what they actually need to work on or what their like fundamental issue is. So could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so yeah. whatever brings you into therapy, most of the time in my experience, is not what we end up actually working on. Because mm. it's it's not the problem. Could you give like a practical example of this? So without disclosing about yeah any yeah yeah no, I'm <laughs> I'm doing a little mental gymnastics yeah. here, but I think I can come up with something. So a really common one is that I'm I'm feeling depressed and I need to feel happy. Sure. You know, yeah. it, like sounds good to me. The depression's getting in the way. I I need I need to fix this. We need to get rid of rid of the depression right? Depression is there for a reason. Mm. If you really break it down to a feeling, depression is often grief, sadness, overwhelm, numbness, apathy, inability to feel good. Like it's very complex. Mm -hmm. So for example, one person, and this is fictional person, a person might come in and be like, I'm feeling depressed. I want to work with somatic psychology to try to get rid of this depression. Fix my depression. Yeah. Fix mm -hmm. my depression. We're not trying to fix your depression. We're trying to understand why the depression is there. Mm. And the word understand is not cognitive. It means we are going to stand under the depression to feel what is in it. And that's disruptive. That's deep. That's that, that was a nice little turn of phrase there, babe. Thank that was you. good stuff. I like that. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> right? So when we do that, then all the feelings that are actually overwhelming, mm -hmm. that the depression is trying to keep you from feeling start to come up. Mm -hmm. So this can actually be maybe anxiety. Mm -hmm. It could be a, a deep fear, a, a disconnect with yourself. It could even be trauma that mm -hmm. you haven't really been able to accept is trauma that you've experienced. So often the the presenting problem is the vehicle getting the body in the door. Mm -hmm. What is getting in the way of a person getting from the initial diagnosis or the presenting problem to identifying the thing that they have to put their finger on to work towards some real change? Intolerance to feeling distress. Because going through that process is painful for people? Yes. Yeah. And so they need to improve distress tolerance in order to be able to start to roll the boulder up. The you hill. have to be able to yeah. feel a little bit of the pain mm -hmm. without being overwhelmed because mm -hmm. the part of your awareness needs to be able to watch what your body is going through. You can't dissociate from it. Mm. You have to stay present with it. How do you help people develop that? First, by not pushing into pain and distress. Mm. So the first layer that we need to approach is, can you feel pleasure? Can you experience something pleasant in your body? Are you able to stay with your body mm. as, as you touch your body, as you engage with it in a way that feels safe? And also it's in the relationship with the therapist. It's about knowing that I'm never going to push you to really feel something that is absolutely distressing. Now, mm. that's not to say, I'm not a saint, I'm not perfect. Sometimes it gets confusing. And there have been some moments that I can own that I have pushed when I shouldn't have pushed, mm. right? But even in those moments, 
I get curious, okay, why did I feel that impulse to push? Mm -hmm. And almost every time after that experience, an opening happens. So this might sound abstract, but I believe that the experience that someone is avoiding starts to just emerge into the space when enough safety has been provided. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when enough safety has been created so that there is enough container for us to have a repair mm-hmm. so that you're not just going to, you know, run out of the room and be like, poo poo, bad therapist, never going to her again, <laughs> you know, that that's all a part of the process. That's mm-hmm. what's needed in that moment. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OSO1 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. Yeah. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information, because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. Way back toward the beginning of the conversation, you talked about focusing on attunement. Mm Mm-hmm that your work is really based on that word. Mm -hmm. What does that word mean to you? And what does it look like in a session? Like, how could somebody know if they're going to see a clinician that they have good attunement with that clinician? So attunement for me refers to the song of someone's body. It's the pitch, the tenor that that person resonates at. And I need to be able to hear that resonance. I need to be able to match that pitch in order for the body to relax. Mm. If I don't, the body registers that I'm an unsafe person and it's never going to tell me its secrets. It's never going to let me know what it actually needs. So it's listening in these quiet moments and paying deep attention to what's not being said. Mm. Mm -hmm. It's a very subtle practice and it takes a lot of time. 
And I tend to take my time with that. And now some people, it can feel kind of magical where my body and their body just sure resonates. Yeah. And other people, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to move my body into their tuning, their mm -hmm. pitch, their tenor. So I want to ask you about developing interoception mm -hmm. and insight into your body's sensations. Because you were talking about dissociation earlier. We also mentioned cognitive bypassing, which, and these are both ways around feeling your feelings inside of your body. And interoception is just the ability to notice your body's sensations or your feelings as they arise. And dissociation of various kinds, whether it's physical dissociation or cognitive bypassing and other things like that, really, really common problem for people. And I'm sure that you've had a lot of people walk in the room who are very cut off from the experience of their body. And I'm wondering if there's anything that you do as, as practices, techniques, methods that help people tap into that. Yeah. The first thing is, is mindfulness, mm. not spiritual mindfulness. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, I'm not going to make you sit there and meditate for 20 minutes. Yeah. It's about cultivating the inner eye mm. to be able to notice the physical sensations that are happening in the body. So I actually got this image from my supervisor who likes to say, imagine you're the lighthouse looking out at the ocean of your experience. Mm. So, so that's the first thing is it's, it's a form of perspective. Mm -hmm. Can you look at your experience without being consumed by it, without being drowned in the waves of it? Can you notice, oh, I'm feeling a little anxious here and ooh, there's a little bit of fear and ooh, without I'm anxious and I'm feeling fear. Yeah. The other thing is, and this is it for people who I kind of talk about, they're like numb from the neck down, is incorporating physical touch. Mm -hmm. Like, can, can you start to massage your hand? And then what, what pressure feels good for you? Being really curious, asking a lot of questions and giving people a menu. Because it's really hard if I'm like, touch your hand, how does it feel? Mm -hmm. Like, if you're dissociated or if you don't have a relationship with your body, you're going to be like, my hand is touching my hand. That's how it feels. Mm -hmm. But it's about building that curiosity mm. without it being bad, without it being judged, without there being something critical of like you're supposed to feel away, right? We're just opening the door of how does it physically feel? And often people will move into a language of emotion, another cognitive bypassing form, and so then we're cultivating that conversation of like, what does it physically feel like? Is it a light pressure? Mm -hmm. Is it a tickle? Is it a tingle? Is there a temperature to it? Is it hot or cold? Does it feel icky? Does it feel pleasurable? You know, and building more capacity to physically feel into the body mm -hmm. and look at it and go like, oh, this is what I'm feeling here. You mentioned cathartic moments earlier. Mm -hmm. And... It's kind of hard to define catharsis, but <laughs> you, you know it when you see it. <laughs> um, it's often a big emotional upwelling. For a long time, people thought that catharsis basically preceded a breakthrough for people in, in therapy, and they needed to get pushed to a place where they had a big emotional experience in order to move on to the next step of whatever it was that they were doing. These days, that's you know that can be a little damaging to certain particularly more vulnerable populations of people. In your experience, what helps people get to the white light moment for them, the kind of breakthrough moment for them that you've seen with some of the people that you've worked with? Great question. And it's being able to differentiate dirty pain from clean pain, mm. to quote Resma Menikin, mm -hmm. who, if you haven't read the book Grandmother's Hands, read it. Yeah. It's amazing. But Catharsis is something, it's, it's a natural process in our body. You know, if we kind of move into a polyvagal perspective, we're big animals and we're just supposed to go through our nervous system responses. We have a shake moment, get the weird out, as I like to say, and then you move on, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. But for human beings, we're acculturated to not be weird in our body, <laughs> to not do the thing we need to do to get rid of that survival strategy and response. So often there is a difference in the session when you're with someone and you can start to feel it when mm. you begin to attune to the resonance of catharsis for the sake of catharsis or actual natural catharsis that just is there and needs to happen. Mm -hmm. 
And I kind of differentiate it between manager parts and exiled parts. Mm. So manager parts often are the most conscious. They sound the closest to you. And in session, it can be difficult to differentiate. Am I talking as a therapist to the manager or am I actually talking to you? Mm-hmm. Now, th- the key thing is that all your parts are you, but each part has a different strategy to try to keep you safe. Yeah, so could you explain what a manager is? A manager is a part that is sort of the CEO of your system. Mm. It's doing all of these tasks to keep other parts quiet, to keep your exiles in the dark, and to keep me, the therapist, from touching anybody. Mm. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's it's the part that'll be like, oh, you see this carrot? Go over there. Oh yeah, I'll cry. I'll I'll say this. I'll say all this stuff. I'll tell you the story, but. Mm-hmm. It's another form of bypass. Yeah, it doesn't want you to touch any of the cups that are in the cabinet. No. They're all arranged the way the manager wants it to yes. be arranged. Yeah. Yeah. And the manager's like, those parts are bad. Yeah. But the key is there are no bad parts. Mm-hmm. So we have to figure out, okay, how do we get the manager on board? How do we get the CEO of this wise and awesome company that's your body to agree to try a new business plan. Mm-hmm. To be like, hey, you're yeah. you're not making enough revenue. I think I know how to give you some revenue. You but, gotta get on the team. But you're gonna have to let me, you know, into the basement, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so could you explain how that works with people? Like, how do you get on the same side? It's through appreciation. Mm. For me, what works is letting the manager know that I care about it. And that we're not trying to get rid of it. And that if it knows this system way better than I do. So I'm going to listen to it. I'm going to question it. I'm going to be like, hey, do you think maybe just for now you could sit off to the side and just watch what happens? And if Mm -hmm. anything starts to get a little too intense, I welcome you and I welcome you and I won't push. And it's through that continual practice of letting the manager know that I'm not going to go against my work. You're not a threat. I'm not a threat. Yeah. I'm working with the manager mm-hmm. because I genuinely want to help it. Mm. Because often managers are freaking exhausted mm. and all they want is that vacation in Italy where they don't have to think about anything for a while. I've been watching the White Lotus recently. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> I heard vacation in Italy. Uh-huh. And I was like, you ah, saw it. You saw I see, it. I see yeah. where this is yeah, coming yeah, from. Yeah. yeah, totally. So a version of this that people talk about is joining with the defense. Mm-hmm. Would you mind explaining that a little bit? Yeah. So I, I'm even like mm, with defense. Okay. And mm, about the word that's often incorporated with defense is resistance. Mm-hmm. So if we believe that a person's body is wise. It's doing exactly what it needs to do to keep this person's psyche safe. That if we find resistance... If that's our theory. If that's our theory, right? If we find resistance or we start to notice defenses coming up, Mm. it means that I have not done my job properly to incorporate enough safety. Mm. That I have missed a part or a part is now starting to emerge that I need to call into the fold, that that part needs to be incorporated before we can move on to the heavy stuff. And often they hide. So I really welcome resistance. I really welcome Mm. defenses because it clues me in that I don't know yet. It's It's like confirmation that there is still more for me to be curious about. And I need to find a way to be more curious. I think that's a really great framework. That would probably help a lot of <laughs> aspiring <laughs> clinicians of various kinds. I know that that was something that was really emphasized in your training. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that kind of natural curiosity. Yeah, because if you try to tell a part, mm-hmm. like like a manager mm-hmm. or a firefighter, you should go on vacation. Mm-hmm. They're just going to double down, you know? And then the client is going to become resistant towards you. But if you're like, what job do you do? Mm. Do you like your job? What do you get out of your job? Is it fun for you? Are you tired? You know, like being curious, asking those questions and trusting when they give you an answer that that's the right answer at that moment. 
that that's mm-hmm. actually how they feel. Mm-hmm. And often doing that and, and letting them know, hey, I get it, I understand. I'm modeling compassion and this is the big sauce. This is the key. I feel like we as a culture, as a people, have lost the capacity to be compassionate towards our body. Mm. We're intolerant to it. Whether that is from all the story that society gives on you should look this way, you should act this way, this is what a good body looks like, this is what a bad body looks like, this is how a good body acts, this is how a bad body acts, right? That we then become our own punishers rather than our own allies. Mm. And so a part of this whole journey is finding the part inside of you that is in alliance with your body, that is the wise, inner, nurturing figure that perhaps you never had modeled to you in the first place. And when you can have access to that part that loves yourself unconditionally with compassion and recognizes that you are suffering and wants to help you from that place rather than punish you for your suffering, Mm. that's when massive amounts of healing happens. Mm. That was great. Thanks for doing that with me, Elizabeth. I mean, this has been really great to just have this whole conversation today, and I really enjoyed it. I hope that we gave people a good idea of what somatic psychology (laughs) is as we talked about 18 other things, but that's kind of typically how our conversations go. Mm -hmm. And I just really appreciate you doing this. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This was so much fun. And I just, I really like talking to you. (laughs) Oh, yeah, same. I mean, so much so. And we have so many like great conversations around the house that sometimes we get halfway into them and I'm just like, wow, I wish we had a A camera. (laughs) Yeah, I wish we we were all just like ready to go for this one. But, you know, it doesn't always work that way. But I'm glad we got to capture those. Yeah. And I appreciate you. Thanks, Liz. I appreciate you too. Elizabeth and I began today's conversation by talking about what somatic therapy is, what it looks like in practice, and what the different populations of people are who might benefit more from somatic psychology than from some more traditional top-down approaches. Somatic therapy can include a wide variety of ways that a person might incorporate using the body as a tool in their psychological growth. We all know that how we feel impacts how we think, And you can see the close relationship between your body and your mind directly in your own experience. We've all had moments where how we feel impacts how we think and how we think impacts how we feel. The two are closely integrated with each other. And somatic therapy just takes this at face value and goes, okay, if this is the case, how can we use the body directly as a tool to intervene in our psychology? And how can all of those physical sensations that we have become just another tool in the toolbox for accessing how we think and maybe even accessing some aspects of our psychology or personality that are a bit harder to get at in the course of everyday life, often because we have parts of our internal process that are really highly defended. And that became a theme for our conversation as a whole. How can we access the parts of ourselves that we've pushed to the side? And cognitive interventions are really great for a whole bunch of different things. I am a very cognitive person, as you know, if you've interacted with the podcast for any length of time. But I've definitely felt in my own experience how sometimes my very sophisticated, very top-down, very talky parts of my brain can actually kind of get in the way of me accessing the parts of myself that I've pushed onto the back burner, on my exiled parts, to use the language of internal family systems. And because we get so good at pushing those parts of ourselves to the side, they often show up in much more subtle or less obvious ways as a sensation, as a feeling, as a mood, as a sudden reaction to something that we're just not expecting. And I've personally found somatic interventions, like some of the ones that Elizabeth shared during our conversation, to be really useful for me personally in accessing those parts of myself. A kind of example of this that Elizabeth gave during the conversation was her relationship with anger and how that relationship has changed over time. And a really important point that she made 
was how there was a part of her that was almost frozen in time. It was this young female part that was really shamed for the ways in which she she trusted herself, frankly. She knew that she didn't like a circumstance. She was angry about something that happened to her, but she was sort of told over and over again that that was not an appropriate emotional reaction, that really what she was feeling was sadness, or really you're not supposed to be angry about this, Elizabeth. Or frankly, she was told that anger just wasn't a feminine emotion. And so she's gone through a fairly long process of inviting that aspect of herself back to the table of her complete self. The language here often gets a little fuzzy. I'm generally not a uh, really evocative artistic language kind of guy, but words tend to fail when talking about this stuff a little bit, particularly when it comes to these more body-based interventions. And that's the best phrase I can find for it right now. And one of the lines that Elizabeth had that I really liked was, we're providing a space where finally those parts feel safe enough to come back into a person's conscious awareness. And that's one of the things that somatic psychology can be really, really effective at. If you're somebody who particularly struggles with feelings of safety, maybe physical safety, a somatic therapist is going to be, generally speaking, very trained in how to interact with a slightly less regulated nervous system, or maybe just somebody who has some vulnerabilities when it comes to feelings of physical safety. That's something that's really going to be taken into consideration. It's always great to talk to Elizabeth, and I'm really glad that we got to record this conversation today, which was very similar to a lot of the conversations that we have just around our house during the day. As I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, Elizabeth is currently working as a therapist. She's in her associateship, and if you would like to work with Elizabeth, you could reach out to her through Instagram or through email, and I've included links to that in the description of today's podcast. Just as a note, she can only provide therapy to people who live in California because that's how the licensing works. If you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it wherever you're listening to it now on. If you happen to be listening to the audio stream and you would prefer to watch a video, well, you can find us on YouTube as well. And if you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash being well podcast and for just a few dollars a month that includes transcripts and expanded notes and ad free versions of all of the episodes that we create and more than anything else we just really appreciate it so thanks to all of our patreon supporters and until next time thanks for listening and i'll talk to you soon